<laughs> yeah, kung fu demonstration evidently happening on stage. Um, my uh, my youngest, who didn't have shoes on, is not, it's not because we forgot to put him on this morning. It's not that at all. We didn't. It's not that. It's because he's 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 not shoeless. He's pre bounce house. So he's just pretty much warmed up for the bounce house, which is out there. Um, you guys, I thank you so much. I um, this is this has been um, incredible. <laughs> Still got kicks going on that side of the room. I still did another just kick. Um, but um, I, I can't tell you how, um, how grateful I am. The, the journey over the past couple weeks has been, um, uh, I, guess I, I, guess, I guess I could say that I've been overwhelmed by the graciousness of the, the families that are here. Um, as Kyle said, we've been in these, these houses for the past couple weeks and having dessert. And um, while the dessert was really delicious... <laughs> It was really about getting a sense of family and community, and, and each, each of them had different sort of, um, I just, they're all a little bit different in their character. On the first night was, um, a little, the folks were a little bit old, a lot of empty nesters in that, in that particular first gathering. And over and over again, the theme that I got from those folks that were attending was um, almost like I was adopted as one of their own kids. Like, we, you know, we, we welcome you into our family like a kid. And, you know, we, we welcome you home wherever you, like, and it felt like this is the most, it, it was such an appropriate, it's such a very appropriate, like, way to just say, um, we put our arms around you and embrace you. The other two nights were a little bit more, like, uh, a little bit more people in my sort of life stage. Little kids, minivans, all that kind of really awesome, cool stuff people talk about. Um, but there was a lot of the, like, you're one of us, and we want you to be like one of, we, we like you because you're like one of us, and we feel like God's led you to us because you're like one of us. And um, I, I just, it has been, it has been an unbelievably um, surprising, great, gracious, overwhelming, joyful experience. Um, as Amanda and I have talked every night as we would drive home from those, um, from those desserts, just uh, um, how God is at work in such a powerful way in the community. And over and over again, the theme that's in this community is community. It is home and it is family. And so I just felt very much a part of it. Um, one of the things I got some counsel on was, you know, the, to give you today a little bit of my own story, because you get a slice of my own life, <clears throat> excuse me, as a teacher on the weekend, but you don't get the, the broader view of my own story. And so um, I, I wanted to give you at least a little bit of a sense of what people heard, if you, you know, for, who were at the desserts. There's only about 10% of us that were there. But I want to give you a sense of my own story. I feel like it'd be good for you to hear where I'm coming from, kind of to give you a sense of my own background and how God has sort of led from my own story into, into today. It's, um, it's, a, it's a powerful moment to remember for me. So... Um, I grew up the, the only the only son the only child of um, a single mom, and my mom is um, my mom you know made unbelievable sacrifices heroic sacrifices for me for us as a family to create a family um, without a dad around. My parents were divorced when I was two and a half, and um, so I I grew up already with a with sort of a sense of um, a, a, not, a house without a dad. And I know a lot of you can connect to this too, but um, right around fifth or sixth grade, maybe a little older than that, my mom started to go to a church called South Coast Community Church. South Coast Community Church is where the Mariners Irvine campus is now. And um, there's a whole really cool story that goes on with that too, but she started to go to South Coast Community Church and started encouraging me, inviting me, helping me find my way into this thing that, that on Saturday nights there was this, um, there was this junior high event called The Spot they just ran out of good name, so it was just the spot. And I remember what I would do is I'd go to this thing, and it was basically dodgeball and sugar and pizza, which I was really grateful for. 
followed by you know five minutes or so of some guy who had to who had to teach to a room full of junior hires who are hopped up on sugar, and tell them tell them about Jesus. And I remember thinking, well, I got to tolerate five minutes of total boredom, but I get to be around all this sugar and all these people. This is so great. And eventually, what won me over to the church um, was that there were the people that these squirrely junior high kids started saying, hey, are you going to come to church with us tomorrow morning? And I thought they were crazy. I'm like, you realize they read from the Bible and talk a long time about stuff, and it's totally insane. It's boring. And they're like, no, we know. It's great. We love it. And over the course of the relationships, I began to actually get a picture of who Jesus was. And my life uh, at about, I think I was in seventh grade. Yeah, it was seventh grade. So I was 12, right before my 13th birthday, I decided to trust Jesus with my life. Whatever I knew what that meant. I remember being in my backyard, having been you know, connected to this youth ministry for a little while. Um, I began to, I was like, I think this Jesus has something to do with my life that I might actually like. So I, I trusted Jesus in my life. And it's about that time that I began to get a re- very real sense of the, the emptiness of my life without a dad around. I mean, I knew it as a little kid, but, and I knew it going to, you know, t-ball practice and everything else. And all those things where I was aware, like, there's lots of guys, lots of kids who have their dads here. And I wasn't, you know, mine wasn't one of them. So... I began to get a sense of it, but as I was a junior high and high school, there became a more profound sense of, I think my dad's supposed to be around here, and I need him to be here in more, um, more permanent ways. So, um, same time, as that's sort of happening, that journey's happening with me, I realized that my neighbor down the street is a guy named Doug Fields. Um, some of you guys know Doug, he's been here a lot, spoke a lot over the past uh, couple months, and um, he was my youth pastor, and so at 14 years old, um, I would walk over to his house from my house and unannounced walk in the door and pronounce the wonderful presence of myself in their home and just expect that they would enjoy that. And, uh, <laughs> and I broke stuff in their house and I didn't know how to really, I wasn't totally sure about how, how important and vital deodorant was at that point in my life and all of those kinds of things when you're 14 years old you're not too sure about. But I was around his house and I was around his family and in my life as someone who didn't have a dad around, I began to get a different sense about a guy who would pour into me, who would care for me. A guy who would say, um, I know that you might have a sense about who you are that's broken from your dad, but he would give me a sense about, no, no, this is what it looks like to have a man in your life care about you. And um, I got, um, man, as I was... uh, (laughs) He began to pour into my life and speak to me. I saw the way that he loved his own kids. I saw the way that he loved his wife. And I began to get a sense about my own life going, this is the way things are supposed to be. And I watched as I thought, as I, was, as I got more and more plugged into this high school ministry as a, as a kid, getting for, for really, really for the first time in my life, getting a sense of how people really do follow Jesus with sincerity and how men do this and how they love their wives and their family. And then there were more guys that were volunteers that were part of this high school ministry who would do the same for me, who would pour into my own life and would care about me. And somehow or another, this picture of the, the, the church and Jesus became more than something, the, it became more than the activity of people that people did when they went to church. I really got a sense about family for the very first time in my life. That while I may not have had a dad around in my life, the church would be my family. Specifically the guys in the church. Um, I, I, in high school, I spent a lot of time, I really, I got really focused on school. I, got, I was really committed to my school time and couldn't believe why it wasn't everybody else's number one priority in their life. 
And, um, I, you know, probably had a little bit of some mis sort of guided, you know, priorities there. But I, I worked really hard at school, and um, I ended up going to an extremely conservative Christian college um, called UCLA. <laughs> and, uh, and it was there where um, I got another sense of what the church is about. Because I, I went to this public college, and um, it was a big, huge university, and I, I pledged a fraternity, and that's when all the youth group parents were like, oh, it was like the Christian one where you like help old people and you, you, know, you just stand at the crosswalk and stop traffic for kittens or whatever it is that you do. And, and I was like, I, I, no, it wasn't one of those fraternities. <laughs> it was a real fraternity. It was a real, you know, it was what you think a fraternity is. And um, in, my, in, my, in my pledge in fraternity and still trying to walk with Jesus, um, I had this... Um, I had the realization that I wasn't going to be able to just sort of make it on my own. And I needed the church to operate in a different way for me, in a totally different way in terms of dependence and partnership. And so I had my, um, there's a group of guys from our church that we went to, and I said, you guys, I'm not going to make it unless we kind of do this together. Some of them were in other fraternities, some of them were just, you know, part of the college life. And I said, I need you guys to come around me, and can we do this together, and can we form some kind of group in which we study God's word, and we pray for each other, and we build into each other, because I'm pretty scared I could go down a pretty, a pretty scary road. And I made it. I got a sense of what it looked like, not, with, you know, not without flaw, but I made it. And I got a sense of what it might look like, as Jesus talked about in, in John 17. He talks about kind of this idea of living in the world but not of it. And I began to take really seriously that maybe God had me in this, this place, notoriously absent of God in it, to begin to talk about it, to live out a picture of what it looked like to live, with Je- live a life that followed Jesus. So I had... I had a Bible study in my room, and I talked. Sometimes there were two guys there, and sometimes there were 15 guys there. And some of them met Jesus for the first time there. And some of them were sure they'd never wanted to talk about Jesus ever again. But there was a sense of me, my life, someone who followed Jesus as best as I knew how, and the life of these hundred other guys overlapping with each other. But I had a sense in that time that, that the church was a place in which people who were in the world could lean on each other and say, we're in the world. We're not going to separate ourselves out of it, but we're going to have to need each other to make it. Graduated from college and I went on to work at um, Saddleback Church. I was I was in youth ministry there with Doug Fields, who was my boss. Worked there for a couple years and um, then I, I interviewed for the high school ministry pastor position at Mariners Church. And I remember during the process, I was I was so I just was like, you know, I feel like this isn't for me. And I I went in. I I, I said I turned around. I said, hey, thank you so much. I think I'm going to go another direction. Thanks for the offer. And but I think this isn't for me. And Kenton, our senior pastor, called me into his office. Said, hey, why don't you just come back one more meeting? Just want to see why it didn't work out or whatever. And I'm like, okay, sure. I've already said no. So I go in to meet with him. And uh, about an hour and a half later, I called my wife Amanda and I said, I, I think I'm, I think I'm the high school pastor at Mariners Church. <laughs> and so I did that for nine or so years at Mariners. And then for the past couple years, two years or so, uh, my role transitioned a little bit. I started to work with sort of the next, you know, end up being the next age group of people. Um, sort of college on in through sort of young, right before you have the minivan. You've still got the two-door car kind of lifestyle. Uh, married folks up till about that age. And, and then empty nesters. So it was this, there was this gap of people. As soon as you had little kids, it was like, we're not making it to 7 o'clock on Sunday nights in the chapel at Irvine. And then there was the empty nesters who were showing up. And I had, we had a great community there, still do. Um, and I uh, spent a lot of time working with, in, on Sunday nights, creating a, a worship sort of environment in our chapel. And then... Um, Kenton during that time and said, Jeff, I need, you to, I need your help. 
to sort of unify the teaching across the campuses. Can you take whatever we're going to teach and make sure that it goes across all the campuses and I want you to develop series and help our people. And, you know, he was really, he was really adamant. He's like, I want our people to not just experience the Bible. I want them to have movement in their lives. I want them to experience some kind, I want the church to move because of these things. So I started to map out with Kenton really closely, like, here's what we're going to do. And talking through all six weeks of these series and five weeks of series and all kinds of stuff. And I got to work a lot. I watched how to lead, how, watch him lead and do all these things. And leading up into Christmas this year, we're getting all prepared right after Christmas Eve. And Kenton says to me, um, he says, uh, hey, I, I, this is like right before the, the seven Irvine Christmas Eve services. He's like, hey, I want you to, I want, he, goes, he goes, this is like he says, he goes, um, hey, do you want me to change your life? And I'm like, please tell me you have a million dollars right now that you just, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so I go, okay. And he goes, all right, close the door, sit down. And he goes, I want you to pray about being the lead pastor at Mission Viejo. And uh, I said, okay, uh, I'll pray about it. Now you have to know, before then, when I was speaking here a lot, you know, there was a, there was a period probably about six, eight months ago, I was speaking here a lot. And he goes, now here's the deal. You teach there and you care about them, but don't, don't get all pastory. Don't get all trying to make something happen there. Because, you know, and I know every time someone that was, a, that was a speaker here, I know a lot of you would run up to him and go, are you the guy? Is, is it you? Should we, you can tell me. You know, we're like, wait. And, just. and so I got that a lot too. And I had, you know, there's a lot of it was like, you know, I just had to say, no, 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 God's got this person. And you know, I felt like this. I felt like I was away at summer camp. And I met a, a girl who had a boyfriend in another state. You know, she lived in another state. And you know, she's going to go after camp. She's going to go back to, so it's like, there she is, and here I am, and oh well, you know, like, and that's kind of what it felt like. So in December, when he says, at Christmas, when he says, I want you to pray about this, and my wife and I took this really seriously, and Kyle and I, you know, and, and his wife, Holiday, all of us went together for dinner, a bunch. we talked about all this stuff, but I, so he asked me, like, December 22nd, and we have Christmas Eve services, the 23rd and 24th, and literally between every single service, hey, did you decide? You going to do it? I mean, like back to seven services. Hey, what do you think? You going to do it? I was like, I, hey, you told me to pray about it, you know. So I really did take him seriously, and I did pray about it. And it was like all of a sudden after I came back after, after the new year and said, I, I think God's calling us to this. It was like, it was as if that girl at camp, you know, was at my high school and she broke up with her boyfriend. You know, it was like, all right, yeah, hey, okay. So now I can start thinking about this in different terms. That I get to start actually being okay with, pastoring and being a part of this community and loving you in a different way, not just teaching, but being a part of this community. And it is like, it has been so great. So the desserts were sort of the culmination of that, what people were saying, we embrace you. And I'm like, I, I, me too, you know, let's all hug. I mean, it's what it felt like. Um, and I got to tell you, this, is, this has been an, an unbelievable journey. It has been a, a faith-building, scary, great, wonderful, joyful, um, courageous fear, all of those things you can imagine. Those, those blessings that you shouted out to us are things that we have felt and known and have had to rely upon. And one of the things I want you to know as part of this story is um, two things. One is, as, as I lead this campus, um, I asked Doug Fields to join me in that, that he would partner with me and help me and sort of mentoring me still continuing on in my life um, to sort of help me out with some of the leadership stuff that I still have questions about and don't know. And, and so he's, he's agreed to do that as well as speak here, um, you know, at least it looks like about 20% of the time. And then one of the things I need you to know is this, that the, as Kyle talked about me, you have to know about Kyle is there's, after Mike left, so June, Kyle has to tell everybody, here's what Mike's going to be doing. 
And Kyle has the unbelievably difficult task of holding together a, a church that is not sure about what's going to happen next. Kyle is a person who's a very gifted leader, but he's a person who never made an attempt to make a grab for power or attention. He never tried to shoulder anything upon himself to say, hey, this is about me, look what I can do. Kyle is a perfect example of someone who is a godly person who is faithful to, in his own walk with Jesus, who is a capable leader, and who is a humble servant. And you, I don't, you, you may never know the, the, the amount of pressure he felt and the amount of work he did behind the scenes to hold this community together. And so as much as I am here, it's, this thing wasn't held together by nobody. And there's a lot of people on staff that did a lot to work for this, but Kyle in particular had a, had a huge role in that, so you can thank him. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I, I, we're, we're here. We're going to talk about the Bible a little bit. We're going to hear what Jesus has to say. And I don't know how we're going to get through it. We're going to do our best, and then we're going we're gonna to hang out afterwards. So would you do this? Before we do that, would you just, um, would you pray with me? And then we'll, we'll get into God's word a little bit. Jesus, um, thank you for family. Thank you for home. Jesus, thank you that no matter where we might have been in our life, no matter what stories we might have heard or been told, no matter what we might have experienced, in terms of who you are, Jesus, we know that you author family. God, I experienced it in so many ways from the people in this room. Over and over again, the theme I kept hearing in all of these desserts was family and home. Jesus, just for a moment as we pause in quiet and stillness, God, would you speak to us? about your love for us, your children, whom you would gather home. Jesus, it is you whom we call Father. It is in your name whom we gather. And it is in your name that we make our home. So Jesus, speak to us powerfully today in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to try to cobble together a, a bit of a message. Um, we're going to spend most of our time in Luke 15. If you want to take a look in the Bible, it will be there. Everything you need is on your outline. If you want it on the screen, it's there too. If you want a Bible, you can raise your hand. Someone will give you one. But um, when, as like I said, so much of the theme of this past couple weeks has been home and family. And one of the, the most dominant sort of God images you get in the Bible is the word Father for God. When Jesus' disciples ask him how they're supposed to pray, when he's doing some instruction on here's how to pray, Jesus starts his prayer with this phrase. Many of you will be familiar. It's in Matthew 6. It says this. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, in a lot of traditions, that prayer, this prayer is called the Lord's Prayer. In some traditions, it's just simply called the Our Father. And Our Father is an incredibly unique term. Uh, it's used only once in the Gospel of Matthew. The, the term my father is used 14 times, and the word father is used about 80 or 90 times by Jesus. But only this time do you see the term our father, which means there's a whole new level of inclusiveness for people who would walk with Jesus. That they, would, they would call him their father. In the ancient Near East, children are powerless social dependents except for the power of their own father who would give to them protection. So when Jesus says, when we all get to pray this, it's not just my father, it's our father. The implication is that we are all his kids. And the notion of being children is an overwhelmingly positive image. It's used throughout this description of God's people as a body, but mostly as his children. 
1 John 3 says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. In other words, the picture of God's love for us is that we get to be called his kids. Continuing on. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now this is written in the early church. This is long after Jesus is, is gone, uh, after he's ascended. But you have this, his ministry sort of, his earthly ministry is over. But the picture of the early church is one in which you have the word now, in other words to say, there is a time in which you were not children of God. Only now because of Jesus you get to, you get to refer to yourselves and we get to know each other as children of God. The other way to say this is that there's a time in which every single one of us was a spiritual orphan, longing to find our dad, longing to find our father. Famously, St. Augustine said this, it's on your outline, but he famously said, you've made us for yourselves. Oh Lord, our heart is restless until it rests in you. In other words, everybody was created in the entire world to need a dad, to need to be fathered, to find their way to their one true father. And there's this sense about the, as Jesus talks, and throughout the whole Bible, you have this picture of people needing their own dad. We all need a dad. Regardless of what your own family of origin is like, every one of us needs a dad that's bigger than our dad. Every morning when I leave, my, my, my son and I have this ritual and it's, um, he's, it's, he's definitely the author of this ritual. It's his thing. But when I leave, I grab my backpack or my keys or whatever else, and I'm about to walk out our garage. He'll jump up for it. Dad, are you leaving? Yeah, I'm leaving, buddy. I, I got to say goodbye to you. And he'll knock over stuff and climb over the couch and, you know, kick our dog on accident. Sorry, Kirby. And walk out to the, you know, walk out to the, the door. And he'll open the garage door and he'll go, I got to say goodbye to you. Okay, buddy. And he says it like this. He'll say, he'll stand in our alley as I walk down to my car. And he'll stand there and he'll say, goodbye, Dad. I love you, see you later, bye, just like that. That's basically the pattern. But I hug him, pick him up, kiss him, and then he says, I want you to see what this looks like. This is just a picture of everyone needing a dad. Check this out. Hey, I love you, buddy. Love you, dude. Bye, Daddy. Bye, Scotty. Love you. Bye. Bye, Scotty, man. Bye. I'll see you later, okay? Whoa, look at that. Bye, Scotty. I love you, too. See you later, bud. Bye, Scotty. Love you, buddy. See you later. Bye. Love you. Bye. Every morning. <laughs> Every morning. It does not matter what time it is, so my neighbors know when I leave. They know every time. Bye, Scotty, I love you. I mean, it's every morning. Well, everybody is created with a need for a dad. And not every, and it, and as, as it says in John, in 1 John 3, now we're children. In other words, there's a time in which we have this experience, this vacuum in our own lives in which Whatever it might look like in which we don't experience the closeness of a father we were intended to have. Because everyone needs a dad. Psalm 68 says it this way. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. The notion of God riding on the clouds, by the way, is, a, is an image of power. 
Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. You get this picture here. God is immensely powerful. In all the stuff that God does, whether it's creating or defending or being a power, somewhere in there is this commitment to those people who don't have dads. Now you have to imagine for me as someone growing up without a dad around, this kind of imagery is incredibly powerful. That he would be a father to the fatherless. And all of the things he's concerned with, all the things that God has to do, and all of his power, he's going to be a father to the fatherless? In other words, the use of his power is to defend those like widows, the lonely, and the fatherless. But the greater implication, like I said before, is that everybody is without their dad. In the ancient Near East, a person is not is the, or is a person is defined by their associations, not by their achievement. In other words, an individual we think of now as the kind of the, the sum total of what they have accomplished or not accomplished. We can imagine them solely by themselves. In the ancient world, and I should say this, still in the Eastern world, if you grew up in a family or a culture that is, you know, Asian and African in some in Middle Eastern, you have a sense of that most of us in the West don't have a sense of, because they're the your known, your individual identity is a culmination of your group association. And first and foremost, so when you're born, so someone born in, the, in, the, in that kind of culture is someone who's born not necessarily with individual rights. There are rights, but the first thing they're born with, what they're marked by is obligation to their family. So, for instance, you're born into a family and your identity and who you are is first given to you by your father, then by your family, your family name, then by sort of what you'd call like sort of a tribe or a village association, and then ultimately by a nation. And nowhere can you separate those things. The individual is always a member of a group. The individual can't be like, well, my family's this, but I'm this. No, 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 no. If you're part of that family, that's who you are. Now, if the power of association is made by your father first and foremost, if you don't have a dad, you aren't a person. You aren't a self. You aren't an individual. If you don't have a family, you have no associations, which means you don't have an identity at all. So when God says he's a father to the fatherless, those people who have no identity are given an identity, an association, a people, a family. It's incredibly powerful imagery, especially for the people who would have been first reading this. When Jesus tells a story, most famously, probably his most well-known story about fatherhood, it's in Luke chapter 15. If you want to turn there, we'll be there. I don't have time to cover all the nuance of what that looks like, but I want to give you a sense of what this looks like. Starting in verse 11, Jesus continued. This is the third of three stories Jesus tells. But here we go. This, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Here's what's actually, actually happening. There's a lot to go into this. But basically here's what's happening. The younger son tells his dad, I wish you were dead, essentially. I wish you were dead. The thing that's most valuable to me about you, dad, is what you can give me money-wise. I want your stuff. Great that you're my dad, but all I want is your stuff. In fact, I so wish that you were not alive, in a sense, is that I, I'm willing to jettison all of my identity, all of who you are, so that I might do whatever I want. And I want your money so I can do it. This is an incredibly shaming thing. Now, in addition to sort of the, the, the group association, what you have in these cultures is what's called an honor-shame culture. Where, in other words... You have a sense of the obligation to the family, but you, re you are a representative of all of those people 
your father, your family, your, your neighborhood, your tribe, your nation. And anywhere that you go, you represent them all the time. So if you decide to do something like this, like wish your own father was dead, you shame everybody. You shame yourself and you poison the whole reputation of the whole group. In other words, the group, the group association is incredibly powerful for a person. So when he says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't want you to be here. I'm jettisoning everything that I am about you. I'm abandoning myself. Verse 13 and 14, it's not in your outline. But here's what happens. It says that he goes off, takes the money, and blows it all in wild living. He just goes crazy. He has the time of his life. And he, he's, um, the way we kind of think of it is like this. You call it sort of this notion of, I have unmitigated freedom. I get to do whatever I want. I have money, and I have free. I can do whatever I want. The Bible says that he finds himself, a famine hits the land where he is, and he finds himself that the only way, Jesus is telling the story, the only way he could sort of find a way to sustain himself was by working with pigs. Now remember, this is a Jewish audience. So a Jewish boy disowns his family, in essence disowns himself, goes off to this faraway place where he's working with pigs, and then he decides, because the famine is so severe, I should eat the food that's given to these pigs. The Bible says he comes to his senses. Now here's what I think. We call that kind of living freedom. The Bible has another word for that. Lost. Lonely. Fatherless. A while ago, we're, we're hanging out. You saw it sort of in the video. You could see, like, how I live with this sort of, you know, very <laughs> suburban. You can't get more suburban than that alley. I mean, every house is exactly the same. There's two models in my neighborhood. But they're all, you know, all, these, all of these garages are along the, the line with each other. And, you know, our... Our kind of culture in our neighborhood is if your garage is up, we've kind of worked hard to do this a couple families, is if your garage is up, means you're home, anybody can come in and out of the, the garage door. We barely even use our front doors. So one, one day we're all hanging out and we're riding bikes and, you know, whatever else that our neighborhood's doing. And my oldest, Dylan, is taking his, takes his bike and, you know, he's riding like everybody else. And all of a sudden we just don't see him. We're, we realize we haven't seen him in 20 or 30 minutes. We're like, where'd Dylan go? And everyone's like, I haven't seen him. I don't know where he went. So you have a little bit of that switch that flips, which is like, I think we should start worrying. We're not yet at the panic moment. But another five minutes or so, we're going to start panicking. So we're like, walking, hey, where's Dylan? Everybody seeing him? And, you know, walking by, people walking their dogs. Hey, you see a little boy, bike, helmet, you know, his red shirt, skull tattoo, smoking a cigarette. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> um, but Ari, he's, you know, he's riding his bike. We don't, we, no one has seen him. So we start to switch into panic mode, start knocking on doors. Hey, have you seen a little boy? You know, that's, 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 the whole thing, you know, going through everybody, all the neighborhood, trying to find out where our son is. And we're like starting to get pretty, you know, it's starting to get pretty intense. We have no idea where he went. And we, you know, gathered a few of the neighbors. Okay, here's what we're going to do. You guys go here. You can call, can you call so-and-so who he hangs out with a lot? Can you call their mom and figure out what's going on? We all kind of divide and conquer, figure out how we're going to do this. Right as that's happening, son rides his bike. Hey, dad. Hi. And I have that experience of, I don't know whether if I hug him, I might crush him. You know, like, I just, I, I really, I'm so glad he's alive, but I just might crush him. You know, just, oh, I'm so glad you're here. So I get, up, I, get up into, I get up into his face, and I go, buddy, everybody was worried about you. We were knocking on doors. We were calling all your friends. We went around trying to find out where you went. We had no idea where you went. You were lost, and we had no idea where you had gone. And he goes, Dad, I wasn't lost. I knew where I was. <laughs> you see, I think the thing is for us in the world, there's a sense that says, if I know where I am, then I must not be lost. What's happening in the story is there's this, Jesus is telling the story of a, a guy knew, who knew exactly where he was. And at the end of the day, well, it might have looked like freedom for a little while. He took him, he had a rock bottom moment and he goes, I know where I am. And I'm lost. 
So he has a moment of clarity. Here's what he says, verse 18. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now what you have to know, is a lot here, but all you have to know is this. Essentially, this sort of abandonment of self is totally finalized here. I'm not even a son anymore. I just want to go back and work on the farm. I don't want my dad to even consider me a son because of all the disgrace that I've caused him. It's a full loss of self. So he heads home. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now the expectation of the audience would have been for a son like this to have shamed you in this way and all of your your family name, your people, your nation, all of those kinds of things to have done those things, the expectation of a father in that scenario is to probably, is to act like just, to deny his son anything, probably in some way to slap him in the face in some way or another to say, get away from me. You have ruined everything for me. You have shamed me. You have shamed your mother. You have shamed the family. You have shamed our, you've shamed our entire country. Go away. And everybody hearing the story would have gone, that's what a good dad does because of the way this son has treated you in the first century. Only the story here is that the, the father recognizes the son coming up. And while he was still a long way off, runs out to meet him, his arms extended. There isn't even a, there isn't even a whiff of scorn or sort of, you know, punishment or disdain. It's just, I'm so glad you're here. And he wraps his arms around him and he kisses him. He puts a ring on his finger and a robe around his neck. And he says, we're having a homecoming party. And so there's, there's, he tells all the servants, we're going to have something awesome now. The, my son's home. He was dead and now he's alive. He's back. This is such good news. Everybody, let's celebrate is what's the story. Now, the audience would have been dumbfounded. No way would a father do that. No way does a father have that kind of love for a son who would do that to his own name. And yet, here's what we have. And then there's this sort of concurrent story that's happening with the older son who didn't go off and live in wild living. Here's what he says. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Stop right there. Jesus makes note that the son is very dutifully doing his job. He's out there doing what he's supposed to do as an older, responsible, older brother would do. Not getting into trouble, being responsible, taking care of his stuff. And there he is in the field. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he said. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The notion of a fattened calf is a community-wide party. It's not like, hey, it's Hungry Man TV dinners for everybody. Hey, we microwaved a lean cuisine. You know, come on in. No, no, no. The notion of a fatted calf is that it's for everyone, the whole neighborhood. Everyone would come and enjoy this feast. And it's a massive party is what's being happened here, what's, what's sort of being implied here. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Not I've been working, kind of been part of the, doing my responsibility as a son. The notion of what he identified as what he had been doing in this household is as a slave. Father, I've been here slaving for you. And you, nev- and never, and you never, diso- and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate my, with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he doesn't say when my brother. There's a little cognitive dissonance there. When this son of yours... Your kid did this. When your, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
In other words, the older brother is clearly going to miss out on the homecoming party. He's saying there's been lots of stuff that's happened. I've been slaving. I've been working. And a guy shows up after he blew off everything. And you're saying, let's have a party? I don't think so. I'm not coming. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because, notice the change here, because this brother of yours. Remember, it was just a second ago, it was this son of yours, dad. Now the father flips it on the son to say, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, a parable is, does a couple of things. One is it gives us a sense of the heart of Jesus. And the second thing it does is it gives us a sense of what God's kingdom is supposed to be like. And in this story, which again is the third of three, is a story about God's kingdom welcoming people who would have otherwise shamed themselves, who would have disparaged the family name, who come back saying, I'm lost. I've forgotten who my dad is. If I ever knew him, I forgot. Maybe I've never known him, but I can't find my dad. And the people who belong to Jesus say, welcome home. Welcome home. This is a place for you. It's a place where people don't have their act all together. Maybe we have our act together. <laughs> but we're broken people who are being restored to a father who says, who runs out to greet us and throws his arms around us and says, I'm so glad you're home. Let's, let's slay the fattened calf. Let's have a party for the whole community. It will be for all of us. And the heart of Jesus for this church, for the entire church, and the church, not the building, the church, the people, the heart of Jesus for this church, in this community, is helping people find their dad. Not with scorn, not with condemnation, not with fear, not with manipulation, but that our heart would be one in which we say, you might have lost your dad, let me help you find him. It's one in which we say people who knew their dad but wandered away, we say, let me help you come back to him. That around here, what would be known as sort of the way we would talk would be one in which we say constantly, over and over again to people, whether it's their first time or it's their hundredth time, welcome home. Every weekend in here is a homecoming celebration. It's a party for those who have gone far away and who have come back. It's a one in which we say, modeled by Jesus' parable here, welcome home. This is what the church is about. And we're not going to miss the party. Because those are our brothers and sisters who have wandered away. When you have to ask the question, whenever you read an excerpt from the Bible, is who's the audience here? I mean, we kind of have this sense sometimes, the way the Bible is taught, like, okay, well, you know, there's this moment where Jesus recorded into a tape recorder or something, and then, you know, someone later just wrote it down. But there's actually an audience here, and I want you to catch who the audience is. Okay, listen to this. The very beginning of the 15th chapter of Luke says this. Now the tax collectors, which you could not imagine a more shameful people in the world, the tax collectors and sinners, sometimes also called the notorious sinners, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the, but the Pharisees, the most righteous, and teachers of the law muttered, this man, meaning Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. One of the things that marked Jesus' ministry is that he was scandalized by people with really poor reputation. He was scandalized by people that nobody else wanted who they said, You've already, just, you've already ruined your family reputation. You've ruined our name, and we don't want you, so go away. And Jesus is the one who says, I'll eat with you. I want to be with you. Welcome home. Welcome home. 
as I think about, well, this is, I should, like I said, there's the three stories that are in Luke 15 are the story of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. In all of them, the emphasis is on the eagerness to reclaim that which was lost. Folks, what we're going to be about as a church, what we have been about, is this notion of family. As we move forward, we want to supercharge that to be in such a way that we say, we're eagerly going to reclaim that which is lost. We look at the world and go, you guys have lost your dad. You're in the mall and you got separated from your dad. Let me help you find him. When we're walking around this campus and you see people, you're going to say with a smile, welcome home. When you see someone walking from the parking lot into this room, you're going to see them and go, they might have been gone for a long time. Smile, welcome home. For the person who you know, who you've been maybe perhaps in Rooted, as we talk about Rooted, this 10-week experience in which you deal with things in your own life in a very honest way, some of them being what we call strongholds, where there's really a grip on your life that has been constrictive. And you see people break addictions, and you see people break the sort of bondage of other things in their own life, and they begin to return back to Jesus, and we would say to them, that's a person who's found their way back home. We see marriages repaired. We see hurting people get prayed for. We see those people who wandered in, not sure if they'd ever be welcomed anywhere else. We see those people and we say, welcome home. We are the children of our Father. And we don't have our act together, but he said, welcome home to us. So we say, welcome home to you. This church is not going to miss the party. As a family, we're going to dedicate kids and families to walk with Jesus. We're going to see people connected in meaningful and powerful relationships. People will be prayed for. There will be an openness to say, I don't, I don't have it all together. People will say, me neither. Let's pray together. But all of us growing to this sense more and more of what it's like to become like the children of our Father, to become what's already true of us who belong to Jesus, to live as children of our Father. That is what the church is about. That's what we're going to be about every weekend and every day, a homecoming party. I want you to catch one other sort of nuance here is this, is that the father running far off into the distance to get his own son, it isn't just about the sanitized sort of experience of, our, of being in here every week. It is about you going to the world in your neighborhoods and in your families and saying, I run to you, my arms open wide, wanting to introduce as representatives of our own father to say, I want to introduce you to your dad with energy and eagerness and compassion. That's what it's going to be about. Every weekend. May our words, our conversation, be about welcome home. That's what the church is about. It's what has already been for me. I know it has been for a lot of you as I've heard stories from you. And it is what will be in the future. People fiercely and courageously committed to welcoming people home, helping them find their dad. Let's pray together. Jesus, we call you Father. Because you love us so deeply and you call us your kids. Jesus, we are people who are broken, who have been wounded, who have been told in so many ways that we're not good enough to be kids. God, we have stories that have shamed our own reputation and have given you or whoever else a bad name. And you say it doesn't matter any longer. I cover you with my love. Jesus, we recognize that there is a world in which we live where people have never found their dad. Father God, would we be people who point because of our love for each other, because of our sense of family amidst, in, in our own midst, about what it means to be connected to you, 
God, will we courageously open up our own homes? Wherever we might live, wherever we might be in our own circumstances, will we say to people who come into our own house, welcome home. When we bring them to church, will they have the experience of family in which we say proudly and courageously, welcome home. God, would that be our legacy? Would that be how we're made known in the community? People who say and live out, welcome home. Father, would you hear our, our prayer as we set our own prayers collectively to music and song? Would you hear us sing out these words as a family committed to you in this place, the one that you make your home, Jesus? In your name we pray, Father, amen.